my weekly's magical flying bookshop your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by pavers pop on your favorite pair of slippers curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favorite authors chat away in my weekly's magical flying bookshop landing wherever you are so come on in and join me claire gill our bookshop host as we hear from one of my weekly's favorite authors like any good story there are three parts to our podcast in the first chapter we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book the middle chatty chapter is quiz the author where the author answers all your questions followed by book post our final cozy chapter with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week Anne Cleves Sunday Times number one best-selling author my weekly favorite and creator of the Vera and Shetland series she's also received the highest accolade in crime and writing the CW Diamond Dagger Award in 2016, she celebrated 30 novels in 30 years. Her characters are as successful on the page as they are on the screen. Rural communities, through their interwoven intricacies, brought to life. Settings are as important as the plot, landscaping, painting the picture as much as words. An author who writes rather than plans. Welcome, Anne, to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. It's so lovely to be here, and your first author too, I'm honoured. Chapter 1, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and a cuppa, as Anne reads you an extract from her latest book, The Heron's Cry. My weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Anne. Yeah, this is from the middle of the book, and it looks at Matthew's relationship with his mum. Matthew left Laura Miller's house in Appledore and drove back to Barnstable. Dorothy Venn was waiting for him at her home. Matthew could see her peering through the window of the bungalow where he'd grown up as a child. It had always felt like an old person's house, even when his parents had been in early middle age. It was as if his mother, at least, had always been anxious, always planning for some disaster which had never occurred until her son, her only beloved child, had renounced his faith publicly at a meeting of the brethren and brought shame upon her whole family. It had been a murder which had brought them together again, a body on a beach and the kidnapping of a woman with a learning disability. Matthew supposed he should be grateful for the resulting awkward reconciliation, but sometimes he thought life had been easier when there'd be no contact. Contact brought responsibility and he could see now in the gaunt, sharp face looking out at him that his mother was getting old. He was the only son and the only person who would care for her. There was no sign of weakness, however, when she opened the door. I thought you were going to be late. He was five minutes earlier than they'd arranged, but he said nothing. He opened the car door for her and helped her in. Happy birthday. It's only another day, nothing to make a fuss about. Have you been to the meeting? He met the meeting of the Baron Brethren, held in a dusty community hall on the edge of the town. He remembered the smell of rising damp, disinfectant and elderly women. Of course, Brother Anthony gave me a lift and brought me home. Of course. The Brethren might have been riven by scandal and corruption, but she'd chosen to maintain her loyalty. 
Matthew could understand that. It had been hard enough for him to break away as a young man, and the community was all that his mother had known. Like him, she'd been born into it. They drove the rest of the way in silence. She sat with her handbag on her lap, her knees firmly together. She was still in the clothes she would have worn to the meeting, a green skirt and a long-sleeved white blouse. Despite the heat, she had on a green, hand-knitted cardigan. She had removed the hat, something woolen and mushroom-shaped, which seemed to be required dress code at Brethren Worship. She spoke first. Where exactly do you live? In the house close to the shore at Crow Point. Do you remember we had picnics on the beach there sometimes? She nodded and for the first time gave a little smile. Your father loved a picnic. A pause. I could never see the point. Sand gets everywhere. But he loved the open air. You must miss him a lot. For a while, Matthew thought he'd overstepped some virtual mark, become too personal. But at last she answered, I do, all the time. If it weren't for the brothers and sisters, I think the loneliness would kill me. The comment took his breath away and a wave of guilt swept over him. He'd thought his mother had stuck with the brethren out of stubbornness or because her faith had remained despite the drama surrounding it earlier in the year. But of course these people were her friends and they'd been there for her when her husband died and when Matthew had stayed away. They came to the traffic lights in the centre of Braunton. There was already a queue of cars leading to the coast and the lights changed twice before they could get through. A group of bronzed, scantily dressed young women crossed the road in front of them and he sensed his mother disapproval. But she didn't speak. They crawled along the road until the turn-off by the Great Marsh. This was a place for locals. Most holidaymakers didn't realise that it was a way to the beach, to the other end of the long sweep of Saunton Sands. Matthew threw change into the basket at the tollkeeper's cottage. The gate lifted and he drove through. He pulled into their drive and switched off the engine. This would be a bleak sort of place in a gale, his mother said. He opened the car door for her and offered her a hand to get out. She stood for a moment looking around her. You've made a lovely garden, though. That's Jonathan's work, Matthew said. He's a practical, creative one. Again, she took a while to answer. I don't know about that. You were always creative when you were a boy. Matthew smiled. The words felt like a vindication of himself as a boy and of the relationship with his husband. Perhaps, after all, this would work out. Come on in, you'll see he's a brilliant cook, too. She sniffed. No need to have gone to any trouble. Jonathan had heard the car and was at the door to meet them, arms wide in greeting. Come in and happy birthday, Mrs. Venn. He gave Matthew a light kiss on the cheek. His mother pretended not to notice and was looking around the kitchen. This is very fancy. We love it, Jonathan said. The table was laid and there were two vases filled with deep red roses from the garden. The window was wide open and the curtain stirred in the breeze. It was as close to eating outside as Jonathan could make it. He took off his apron and hung it on the back of the cupboard door. He was wearing black shorts and a black T-shirt with the name of a craft brewery on the front. On his feet, he wore flip-flops. His toes were wide and flat. Matthew called them hobbit's feet, a silliness and an intimacy. His mother stared at Jonathan for a moment, as curious as if he were a being from another planet. 
Are you ready to eat? Jonathan asked, or would you like a tour of the house first? Why don't we have lunch now? Matthew couldn't bear the idea of showing his mother around the house. Another bedroom with two dressing gowns and another bathroom with two toothbrushes. And Jonathan wasn't the tidiest person who knew what might be left out. Matthew wanted a check first. I might be called back to work or in the middle of a murder investigation. That makes sense. Jonathan rolled his eyes at the mention of work, but only Matthew could see. And of course I have champagne. Dorothy still hadn't spoken. The room with its flowers, the copper pans hanging from a rack on the ceiling and the art on the wall, mostly posters for exhibitions Jonathan had held at the woodyard, seemed to overwhelm her with its space and its colour. She appeared almost breathless. Jonathan went to the fridge and pulled out a bottle, only the supermarket brand, but real champagne all the same. Let's have this with a starter. Matthew expected his mother to refuse. Alcohol wasn't forbidden by the brethren, and his father enjoyed a whisky most evenings after work, but Dorothy never participated. More, Matthew suspected, because she enjoyed the martyrdom of denying herself pleasure than through religious conviction. Now she stood in the middle of the room, gripping her handbag, looking around her, and he saw that she was nervous. he never known his mother be anything other than confident in her certainty. There's orange juice if you prefer, Jonathan said very gently. She might have been one of his clients at the Woodyard Day Centre. It's your day, whatever makes you happy. Matthew watched, moved as she took her seat. She smiled at Jonathan, not at him. I might try a glass of champagne, she said. I had some at a wedding for the toast and I did quite enjoy it. Jonathan turned, winked at Matthew and opened the bottle. The phone call came late in the afternoon. Dorothy had complimented Jonathan on the tenderness of the beef, the way the Yorkshire puddings had risen. I was never very good at batter, not for Yorkshire puddings or pancakes. The cake with its candles and elaborate decoration had been a huge success. After a lifetime of healthy eating, it seemed to Matthew that his mother actually had a very sweet tooth. He and Jonathan had sung happy birthday, Jonathan taking the lead. The whole afternoon had had a strange, surreal tinge to it. It was hard for Matthew to believe that this woman, who had haunted his life and had been the subject of earnest discussions with his therapist, had become elderly, lonely and powerless. Someone who was willing to compromise in return for kindness and company. By now she was rather pink and had removed the cardigan. Her handbag had been put under her chair. She looked younger, more relaxed than Matthew could remember. Jonathan had been collecting plates. There were two empty coffee cups on the table. Dorothy had asked for tea and Jonathan had made it for her in a small pot. She liked that. She still disapproved of tea bags. Matthew had switched off his phone, but he could hear it vibrating in his pocket. He looked at it. Sorry, I really have to take this. He walked out into the garden and heard gulls the tug of the tide on the shore. Boss, was Jen Rafferty calling on his mobile. I'm sorry to disturb you. I know you're busy today. What is it? I think you need to come. There's been a 999 call. The report of another body. Thanks for that fabulous extract, Anne. We can't wait to hear some more about this new novel after this short break. We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. 
Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, 1 to 10 for women and 6 to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote Weekly 1, that's W E E K L Y 1, as in the number 1, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion, find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's P-A-V-E-R-S Now, let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter 2, Quiz the Author. This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author. And don't forget, you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 575 486 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who our next guests are or head over to the website www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I've just selected your latest book, A Heron's Cry from Our Bookshelves, the second of the Two Rivers series featuring Detective Matthew Venn, the first being The Long Call, which hit the number one best-selling spot. Without any spoilers, can you tell our listeners the premise of A Heron's Cry? Well, it's quite difficult to try and unpick where stories come from. I think it started it started with a library event that I was doing in in uh, in Devon, and I was sat there and I was talking. And at the end, you always ask for questions. And a woman stood up and she said, "This isn't a question; it's a comment." I work for the NHS in the investigations department, and I didn't really know what an investigations department within the NHS was. But she said, I say to my team, be more like Vera, be dogged, but be compassionate. But I was really quite intrigued by this idea of an investigations department. I thought maybe they looked at um, negligence complaints or or things like that. But because it was investigations, it made me think of, of a police inquiry. And afterwards, she disappeared before I could speak to her because I was signing books and we couldn't track her down. The librarian didn't know who she was. The bookseller didn't know who she was. But I had this idea in my head to do something around um, police investigating a, a negligence in the NHS. So that's how it started, I think. And then I had this image of blowing glass because... 
a friend of mine is a glass blower and I'd gone to her studio and it seemed a, a great metaphor because you've got glass which is molten and pliable and it can be whatever you want it to be whatever shape you want it to be when it's hot but then when it's cold it shatters and breaks and I thought that some people were a bit like that you know, they they're easy to please they're amiable they'll be whatever you want them to be and then some circumstances change or something happens and they just crack and so that's why the murder victim is investigating a complaint of negligence and the victim is killed in a glassblower's studio. I was really interested by that, you know, that idea of Eve being the glassblower. And, you know, you've talked about your friend there whose job it is. I mean, did you have a go at yourself? Is that something that you would do as an author? I didn't have a go myself, but I did go and watch Bob Crooks, who's a brilliant glassblower who's exhibited at the V&A and whose stuff sells very well. And that was what convinced me that this would make a very good crime scene because it does look a bit like anyone's idea of hell because it's so hot, the furnace is going. And all along the walls, there are pincers and tongs and huge things that make it almost look like a torture chamber. But no, I didn't have a go. It is very tricky. You need two people really to make the intricate um, shapes of, of the vases and the bowls that they were doing. How important is it to find these ingenious ways to incorporate interesting murder weapons um, in, into your books? You know, you've always got to come up with another way of somebody dying, haven't you? Um, are you always on the lookout for these kind of ideas and methods of, of killing somebody? I don't think I am really, because I don't think the murder is quite often the most important bit of the book, because I love writing about families and communities and what holds them together and what breaks them apart and how people grow out of the place where they live and were born. So quite often I just hit them over the head with a blunt instrument or, you know, something simple. But with this, I did want glass to be there at the heart of it because of this metaphor that's running all the way through all this, to give it a bit of cohesion, really. And so I'm very lucky. I've got some some great contacts and a very good friend of mine is Professor James Grieve, who is who was the um, forensic pathologist in Aberdeen. So if there were a murder in Shetland, for instance, he would have been the person to to go and investigate or any unexplained death. So I, I spoke to James and said, James, could you actually kill somebody with a shard of glass? And he said, I worked in Aberdeen all those years. The number of glassings that I've seen and the victims I've had on my table, yes, you could very easily kill somebody with some glass. So, And then he went on. So all the detail in the, the post-mortem scene in the book, in The Heron's Cry, is um, pretty well verbatim what James told me he would look for if he was, um, if he was investigating a murder by glass that's really interesting and you know having that metaphor as well but you sort of touched on you know there is this sense of it's not about the crime it's about the everyday reality of those who are dealing with it you know detective Matthew Venn his life you know with his partner and his husband and what's going on there Jen and also newbie Ross how is it important to show that 
situation of home and work colliding? I think it is. I I want them to be real people. And in this series specifically, I think it's much more of an ensemble piece. So with Shetland and Vera, really there was one central character and they drove the narrative on and we were most interested in them and their lives. But here I've got a whole group of people that I want to explore and, and get and, and I hope the readers want to get to know them better as the series runs on. So, yeah, we have the, the detective team. We've got Matthew. We've got Jen Rafferty, who I think I'm very interested in Jen. She's a scouser. Um, she's one of those women who married too early and have kids too early and then hit their late 30s just as the children are becoming more independent. And they realize what they've missed out on. They've missed out on all those wild teenage years and the bands and the music and the fun. And and now she's, man, can she party? And she's a bit promiscuous and she's trying to find a man and all that is going on while she's very ambitious at work and she has this guilt of looking after to um, two teenage kids. So, yeah, I loved writing about her. But besides the police team, there are also um, Matthew's husband, Jonathan, but also um, other characters like Lucy Braddock, who's a young woman with Down syndrome who appears in both books, and her dad, Morris. And we see how she develops too, going from being at home and being overprotected by her father to actually moving on to independent living and I think that's what you do so lovely you know you do take these characters you take a sample don't you of local life if you if you want you know I think before you've reflected that what you do is human geography writing about places through its people and you've got that with characters like Lucy and with Jonathan and building up that sense of you know place um how important is it to you to ensure that you resonate with and reflect local life I know with Shetland you've got an islander to read it over obviously with Vera with your northeast links and also you know having lived in Devon with Matthew Venn you do try and portray that local sense that sense of community in your books it is very important to me and I think North Devon was interesting to write about because I I lived there from when I was 11 till I left home um and I wanted to get that right I also wanted to get the marriage between Jonathan and Matthew right it's it's an impertinence really for a straight woman to write a gay couple I think and I I think three different gay couples read the book before it actually went to press. Um, so that was important. I didn't want to um, take on somebody else's lived experience without checking with them first. I think that's really important. And it does show so much in there. I mean, when you talk about in the Heron's Cry about the area of Barnstable, I myself was a grockle, a tourist. I love that use of that word. In fact, I got engaged at Salt and Sands. So I really felt when I was reading it that you did bring that sense of place. You know, for me as an outsider going there, I felt that you did portray it really realistically. And did you find yourself sort of reminiscing about your childhood in Devon? as you were writing The Heron's Cry. I did. And really the book came about because I needed to go back to somewhere where I'd been very happy. My husband died quite unexpectedly uh, nearly four years ago. And it was running away from here and the memories and the people who were so sympathetic and all that pity that actually drove me down to North Devon to stay with an old school friend just to escape for a bit. And it was while I was there 
um, talking to her that the first ideas for Matthew and, and the series develop. That's it. That's, you know, so good to sort of hear how you develop that sense of place you know in your writing and your experience and the other thing that struck me and it struck me with the darkest evening as well with with the the Vera book that was out last year is that you have this sense of weather so you know in the heron's cry you have the heat wave and you carefully craft it it's almost adding to the madness adding to the the plot of what's going on and adding to the character's plight and you know, in my previous role as commissioned editor, I would read Christmas stories in the summer. Do you manage to write to season? And how important is it to reflect something like weather that affects everybody in these characters in your books? I think it does. I think weather is part of the place. And I've always lived in places where weather matters. So when I started writing on the tiny tidal island of Hilbury in the de-estuary, and it mattered which way the wind was blowing because when it was really wild, it would decide you which door you were going to use to get in and out of the house and whether you would be able to walk across to the shore if it was really, really stormy it was some, or if it was very foggy, it would be dangerous to go. So weather has always mattered because it grows out of the place, I think, where, you're, where, where the books are set. And it provides atmosphere. So the the violent storm at the end of the Heron's Cry does provide atmosphere for the book. And do you manage to write in season? Or do you have this, you know, like a lot of authors do, sitting there in the blistering summer heat writing about winter or vice versa? Yeah, well, it takes me about nine months to write a book, so I'm never going to be entirely in season. So you get to write all weathers perfect. Talking about male voices, I know that you said that obviously with with Matthew Venn and his husband Jonathan that you um, ensured that, that that was sort of accurate. But from a writer's point of view, do you prefer to write in a female voice like Vera or did you really enjoy writing in Matthew's voice? How is that as a, a female author yourself? I think it's just the same because I'm not Vera. So it's it's like acting really. You have to get inside their head and look at the world through their eyes and I'm not Matthew. So when I'm writing him, I'm, I become him almost. It's why I think I never really describe the appearance of the central characters because I'm always there inside their heads looking out. I'm not from outside looking in. And I think as a reader, it's actually really nice to create your own picture you know, in your head of how you see that lead character to be. So it's an interesting way of, of writing. Of course, you didn't start out as a writer and a lot of authors that I interview don't. You know, Millie Johnson started out as a greeting cards writer. You were um, had an interesting sort of career path as a, a bird observatory cook, an auxiliary lifeguard. And um, how do you feel that experience is crucial to your writing? And what kept you going? Because you say for the first 20 years, you had no commercial success. So is that experience really important? And does something like being an author take that time and take that commitment over, you know, a couple of decades to get right? Um, I think I was quite lucky. It wouldn't have been much fun to suddenly be famous or to have a bestseller with the first book. You need time to write and to get better. And I think there's a lot of pressure for people who do succeed very early in their careers. So that was lovely. Um, I don't think you necessarily need lots of different careers, though it certainly helped me. You just need to be curious about people. So I can pick up ideas in trains when I'm in the bus 
when I'm having a drink or a meal out. So you just are always curious about other people. I think that's the most important thing. I think what really nice for authors and particularly you is you give back. You know, you've been so involved in reading projects, particularly one in a prison. How do you think reading can change lives in your experience? Yeah, I'm working very closely with with libraries, GPs and um, Public Health England on a project called the Reading for Wellbeing Project. Uh, That's up here in the northeast. And we're looking at um, social prescribing, you know, how GPs can prescribe membership of a gym or referral for advice about debt or addiction. And we're getting GPs to prescribe membership of a reading group or um, contact with a reading project worker, because I think that fiction can help, that you can lose yourself in a book, that if you've got weird ideas clattering around in your head and you're anxious and and depressed that having somebody else's ideas in your head for a bit is a real break so yeah I'm, I'm very involved with that and I love doing it excellent and before we go on to our readers questions I just wanted to know what's next are we which detective are we going to have a book from next are you allowed to say yeah next is Avira and that'll be out next September Excellent. Looking forward to that. So we've had lots of readers' questions in. We've had lots of interest about the interview on our social channels, our website. And I've just got a few uh, minutes to go through some. We've got reader Sharon Boothroyd wants to know, when you wrote Vera and the Shetland novels, did you feel it would make a good TV series? Did you consider making the change to TV drama yourself or did someone else suggest it? Oh, no, it was nothing to do with me. Um, and no, I didn't in a million years think that um, that any of my series would be on television. And here we are with with all three, which is a bit bonkers. But um, no, it, it ha- Vera came onto television quite by chance. Somebody walked into an Oxfam shop in North London, picked up a copy of The Crow Trap, the first of the Vera books, to take on holiday. Uh, Nothing at all unusual in that. But she happened to be books executive for ITV Studios and they were looking for something to replace Frost on a Sunday night and they wanted something with a strong female lead. So absolute luck that got Vera onto the TV. Her, her name, she, I still think of her as my fairy godmother. She was Elaine Collins and she went on to produce several series of Vera and several series of Shetland. Can I add to that? Do you ever sit and watch it at home or is it one of those things, you know, you don't like to look at your own work in that way or do you sit there, you know, and enjoy it yourself with, you know, a hot cup of tea and a blanket, you know, during the winter? Absolutely do. Yeah, absolutely do that. And we've had a a lovely comment from uh, Brona Oolong that says, thank you. I love the novels. I love Vera. So you've got a big Vera fan there. Um, We've got some questions as well from Emma Lenton. She says, which detectives have been Anne's favourite to write about? I don't think I have a favourite. It's like asking you to choose between your children, isn't it? I can't really do it, no. And even if I did have a favourite, I couldn't possibly say because you wouldn't if you were asked to choose between your children, would you? I absolutely agree, Anne. And I think I would be in a lot of trouble here at home if I did choose. Um, Of course, you could never do that. Now we've got, Anne, another question here from Emma, but she's left us a message. So let's hear from Emma and she can ask you her question herself. Would you ever consider doing short stories where multiple of your detectives team up 
to solve a murder across different areas, e.g. Shetland and Vera, Vera and Fenn, Shetland and Fenn, or even all three. I don't know. We, we've talked about it, uh, but just in, as a bit of fun, you know, maybe for a have um, Vera and Jimmy Perez and Matthew Venn on a comic relief sketch or something would be quite fun. But no. I think that would be perfect. <laughs> Audrey asks an interesting question about um, the Heron's Cry. She says, The religious element of the Brethren adds an interesting angle to the new Matthew Venn series. Was Anne inspired by any interesting real-life cults during her research? I didn't really do much research. Um, I've got a friend who grew up in a very similar sort of community. You know, not cruel or unkind, but just very certain and I'm always a bit wary about people who are very certain in their beliefs. I think that way danger lies. You need to be a bit open-minded and a bit open-hearted when you're talking to other people. So that's, and, and the Baron brethren are completely fictitious. They're just made up. It seems that your friends provide so much inspiration. And I wonder if they're always saying, do they ask you ever, you know, can I be in your next one? Or are they sort of, you know, just glad glad to read what you've done yeah no they don't particularly want to be in it I don't think and and um, Martin and Paul the, the gay couple who really were the inspiration for Jonathan and Matthew are very very helpful and I think they're a bit bewildered that it's all taken off so so dramatically yeah, that's amazing and we've finally got a question from Stuart who asks you've created some very famous detectives but who is your favorite fictional sleuth that's not your own creation? Oh, that's a lovely question. I always go back to, um, I suppose, the, the, the first detective that really pulled me in, and that was George Simonon's Maigret, because I think he's, he, he's very modern, although he was written a long time ago. He's very, very contemporary because he says that his role is to understand, not to judge. And I think that's what modern writers of crime fiction want their detectives to do. Oh, thanks, Anne, for that wonderful insight into all our favourite detectives. And thanks also to all our questions that you've had emailed in or left phone messages to. Don't forget, you can send your questions for all our authors uh, to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. That's flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. You can either leave a phone message or send your questions in there to all the brilliant authors we've got coming up. And of course, I'm sure you're so all eager to get your own copy of The Heron's Cry. So if you go to the notes on episodes, then you'll be able to click on and buy the book just there. So don't miss out. And now we're going to go into chapter three, book post. Thanks, Anne. Here we are in our final chapter, book post, chapter three with our author Anne Cleves. Personally, my favourite part of the podcast, where we reveal our hotly tipped book of the week. After rifling through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop letterbox, with a particularly large thud, being nearly 500 pages long, this week is State of Terror by Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough teasers to entice you to read. Let's take a look at the blurb. An explosive, never-seen-before thriller 
set in locations around the world. There is edge-of-your-seat suspense, breathtaking action, ride-or-die friendships, unlikely allies, even a blush of romance, plus all the heart and humanity you can expect in a Louise Penny novel with a behind-the-scenes perspective that only an insider can know. Wow, what a write-up. Plenty of strong female characters, which is not surprising as it's written by two arguably strong women. Hilary Rodham Clinton. It's Hilary's first novel, thriller, featuring a USA government dangerously out of touch amid a series of terror attacks. And her writing partner is internationally best-selling author of Canadian crime, Louise Penny. You Yourself Anne has described State of Terror as the perfect political thriller rollercoaster action. Credible heroes and villains and a glimpse into the world of our most powerful politicians. Add into the mix flashes of humour and fine writing and we have a winning formula. Can you tell us why you picked this book? Yeah, I got sent this book partly I think because Louise Penny is a good friend of mine and I've worked with her. She's been very supportive. She's huge in the States. People love her Inspector Gamache books. And she's becoming very, very popular here. And also, you know, what a what a chance to read something written by Hillary Clinton, too. And you get such a sense of female friendship throughout, I think. And although you say it's a very long book, it doesn't feel like it because man does it move. I mean, you're you're on planes and you're visiting different countries and you get that great insight into a secretary of state because the the lead character, the central character, is called Ellen Adams, and she is she does what Hillary Clinton used to be under the Obama regime. And it's a thriller. It's all about political manoeuvring. It's about family as well and about betrayal in the end. I think that's what's really interesting. I mean, I was saying to you, I literally read it in a weekend. I don't think any of body in my family was particularly happy because I just sort of sat and I just couldn't put it down because it was so it didn't just gallop it was like the Icelandic horses the one above gallop the gate above gallop it it was so fast and it had so many different viewpoints swapping around you know as you read it really did keep my attention I think what I sort of found really interesting in it is that when I've read Hillary's memoirs, I wasn't sure, if I'm honest, how it was going to transpire to fiction, how she was going to approach this. And as I read as a reader, and it was really interesting to read the acknowledgements at the end, I kept questioning, is this fact? Is this fiction? Because, of course, she'd been through all of this. You know, the character Betsy in it was actually based on a real life uh, friend of hers who sadly died of, of breast cancer. And the publishers promised that it would be um, only details that insiders would know. Um, Do you feel that they, you know, with Louise's help within her experience, had created authentic voices? And could you tell the fact from fiction when you were reading it? No, and I wasn't really looking for it because I did... You you suspend credibility whenever you're reading fiction and you want to believe that what you're reading is true and it's meaningful for you. So... I didn't, I, I wasn't looking for, is this real? Would they actually have done that? I was just there with them on those long plane rides. And then that sense of having to 
perform for an audience if you're Secretary of State, especially if you're female Secretary of State, where it matters what clothes you're wearing and whether you've got your makeup done and what your hair looks like. I think women will love this book because there are these strong central characters who are, who are fighting in very much a, a male world both here and in the scenes in the Middle East, more specifically there, I think, or in the West and in the Middle East. I think that's spot on. You know, when I was reading it and she was on the plane, she'd fell asleep, hadn't she, on Ellen, uh, the, the Secretary of State, on the papers that she was reading and she'd got a dishevelled hair and a dishevelled makeup. And amongst all this, all these massive sort of plots that were going around and international sort of problems and and terrorism she's there thinking about her hair and her makeup as she said you know because she knows that that's what the press will pick up on and that she will be judged on how she looks rather than what she's done exactly that the the way that she's handled the situation and she is that strong woman you know she's she's driven isn't she by family and friends how important do you think it is to give that kind of motivation to that character, to that strong female? I think it is important because otherwise she would just be a figurehead. She'd just be political. And I think um, we see a lot of Louise's, the strength of Louise's writing in the warmth and those flashes of humour that that lighten it a bit, don't they? Because otherwise it would be quite intense, I think. But we do need those 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 bits of humanity and that those quite interesting one-liners occasionally that make us feel very sympathetic to these women. That's it. And I think, you know, with Louise, you could see her hints to the pines and her, you know, if, if you're aware of her books, they sort of, um, you know, the, the links between what she writes and, and being this big Canadian author and, um, you know, what's in this book, there's little drops of little teasers throughout. Um, what I did notice is they talked about what would be their worst nightmare, their, that State of the Terror was their answer. How important do you think it is, this idea of extremes, you know, finding the worst and working back from that? I think some people think that's what crime fiction does, that it helps us explore our our nightmares and to, um, in some ways, to conquer the fears. Because if we read it and write it in fiction, then it makes it more manageable somehow. And you would hate to think that what Hillary and Louise have written about would actually happen but then we had the the escape of those people or the attempted escape of those people from Kabul and they'd written this novel way before that happened and it was very prescient I think in lots of ways. That's exactly what I thought when I read it and I thought this just echoes what's happened recently and I must admit I went back and I looked at the publication dates and tried to work back you know because it 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 did sort of almost predict these scenarios which was chilling in a way I mean Hillary and Louise were friends you know and they've got this partnership um and they were I think you know if you're going to work with a friend it's like working with a spouse isn't it there's always that sense of how is this going to happen how is this joining of experience going to work have you ever thought of doing something similar or have you been approached either by a political figure or you know working with a friend do you think you could do that like Louise and Hillary have I'm not sure that I could. I like being in charge of my characters and in charge of my books. I think I would find it quite hard to give up control. And I think they are so close. They are very, I know that they're very good friends and that that helped them work together. And I think they brought different elements to the story because 
Hillary obviously had the experience of being Secretary of State and understanding the political situation. And Louise has written many fine books. And I think between them, they had they probably played different roles. I don't know how it worked, how they, they managed to do it. But I suspect that Louise was the person who actually wrote the piece. And Hillary fired in all the ideas. So the ending leaves with endless possibilities and actually instead of wrapping it up it actually opened everything up I mean it was not the ending I kind of expected do you feel like this is the first of many that this is going to be you know a, a, a series that they're going to create now I hope so I certainly had the feeling at the end like you that there was more to come and that that relationship could develop and that they could write more about it and I know that that again, the political situation in the US before the storming of the Capitol, I think that's very well explored too in there. Um, and I, I suspect that that was perhaps one of the jumping up off points for the novel. And there's all sorts of domestic events in, in the US that they could explore in future books. And finally, you know, I was thinking about this, the idea of looking at international politics terrorism it's not your typical commercial female-led novel do you think that what they've done here is almost created a kind of new genre if you like within the commercial market I think so I never really thought about that but you're absolutely right because pacey political thrillers have always been written by men previously haven't they and so to get a a new female take on the subject is absolutely brilliant. And I do hope that it, it sells as well here as I'm sure it will in the US. Thanks, Anne. I'm sure it will. I mean, personally, I've been recommending it to everybody. It it just transported me to different locations and the characters. In fact, I don't think I've read such a fast-paced book um, in the last few years. So I will keep recommending it. And thank you, Anne, for bringing it to Book Post this week. Now, if you want to get your own copy of State of Terror, then if you swipe up on the episode notes, you'll find all the details and you can buy it straight from there. Time at My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop has come to an end for this episode. Join us next time for more big name authors, stories and extracts read just for you and our favourite book recommendations, landing wherever you are. Whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to The Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill, and this was my weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style. <laughs>